Welcome to episode four of Between the Times. My name is John Payne. I'm sitting here with my good friends Gabriel Williams and Ross Hodges. Good to see you guys. Good to see you, brother. How's it going, man? It's going well. It's going well. So, Ross, you turned 33 yesterday. How does it feel to be 33 years old? Well, it's a little embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> Ross, you are an embarrassment. Did I tell you that? <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I think you've mentioned it once or twice. In staff meeting? In staff meeting, and perhaps when I was behind the pulpit. Uh, no, it's, uh, it feels good. Uh, it seems like I look in the mirror every day, and there's one or two more gray hairs, so I'm beginning to look a little more and more like you, John. Well, you just you just stand next to me, and you'll start feeling better about yourself. Oh, I do. Ross, I do. Um, with age and gray hairs. Well, that's what church planting does for you. You see, two years of church planting. Um, each year, I added about 20 gray hairs. So, Well, we are uh, excited for this uh, fourth episode of Between the Times. Um, I'm really excited about it. In fact, when we started this, uh, I've been looking forward to this particular episode because uh, we are going to interview uh, Gabriel Williams, our co-host. Gabe is the assistant professor of atmospheric physics at the College of Charleston. He began that job back in the fall of 2013, and uh, Gabriel has uh, quite a testimony, and um, uh, Gabriel is, uh, is a man who loves the Lord and uh, is seeking to lead his family uh, in Christ, and it's a joy to watch as your, as your pastor, and uh, so it, it delights me for our listeners to hear a bit of your story. Sure. Uh, and so I'll ask you first to tell us where you're from, where you grew up, and a bit of your, your testimony and coming to know the Lord. Sure. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York, so in the middle of New York City. So this was mid-80s. And my family moved to a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. So for those who know, that's Decatur around when I was about eight or nine years old. And so just as a kind of a background survey, my grandfather was a Pentecostal bishop, actually. And because of that, I would be a third generation classical Pentecostal. And so that's the home I grew up in. Those were the churches I grew up in. And for the most part, uh, most people would say I was a pretty good kid, but around the time of middle school, high school, I just turned away from what I was basically raised with. And so around those years, I basically began to embrace a brand of atheism. Mm. And this was around maybe 14, 15 years old, where I was a very open atheist um, in the sense of I wasn't uh, I wasn't shy, I wasn't hiding my uh, unbelief in God. And be honest, uh, it was something that was a shock to most people who knew me growing up, hmm. but it was something I more or less hid from my parents. I still obeyed them. I still went to church, but I basically thought they were superstitious. I thought they were just trying to figure out the world in their own little way. And around the time when I be- became around 16 years old, I began to ask deeper questions about life. And so the most obvious question that I began to ask as a 16 year old was, why does evil exist? And to me, that's a personal question because when you grow up in inner cities, you see a lot of evil. Mm. And it's not just, you know, a person, you know, said a curse word here or there. No, you saw people selling drugs to people. You saw people getting harmed on the street, 
you saw people getting robbed and you just can't say it's not evil mm. it is and the question of evil really began to dig in into me to ask questions on things like ultimate meaning and so eventually by the time I was about 16 all of these things came to a head because I was still considered a good person but I also knew I had some pretty wicked tendencies inside of me as long as I didn't show it to people I felt fine but in high school I knew some Christians who were uh, solid Christians they were walking their faith they weren't just in name Christians only and they began to confront me about my sin mm. they began to confront me about this sort of hypocrisy I had and they really just brought it to me in a straightforward way that I'm a smart guy but that doesn't mean I'm not a sinner and around the time of the summer of my junior year in, uh, in high school I heard the gospel preached and today I think that would be called fire and brimstone sermon but <laughs> it was a very clear sermon uh, the pastor basically read from Revelation these are the sort of people who have their place in the lake of fire and it wasn't it wasn't a uh, skating around the edges. Uh, he went down actual types of people. And ultimately, it came down to the fact that I saw, well, I fit the description because I was a liar. Um, I clearly didn't love my neighbor. And to be honest, I really had no answer to it. Because, again, I agreed that evil existed. I am evil based upon this description. And so I'm left with no other recourse. And so that word just arrested me and some short time afterwards uh, began reading the scriptures and recalling the things I've been taught since I was maybe uh, four or five years old and it led me to uh, turn from my sins and it's at that point where I remember consciously trusting in Christ at that point. So um, for most people, uh, you know, your first years as a new convert are you know light and darkness sort of contrast and that's what it was for me that if you talk to some people I knew you know when I was 14 15 they would have said he's a smart guy but he's arrogant he's full of himself he curses a lot he disrespects people he hates being around people that's the sort of description that I would have had um, after that point uh, I was still you know, a little shy but my disposition dramatically changed. So things that were normally attributed to just me having a personality was just transformed uh, mm. in a matter of some months. And so mm. it is that point when I realized that um, I am a sinner and I need a savior. Mm. And I had already known of other major religions. And so I have Muslims in my family. So I knew a good bit of what Islam taught by that point. I had, you know, some people in high school who flirted with kind of Buddhist and Hindu sort of philosophy. So I had a general idea of kind of the major worldview presented there. And to be honest, I believe it's simply the grace of God in which I was not persuaded by those arguments. Mm. Ultimately, uh, the scriptures presented the most proper view for me concerning the origin of evil the persistence of evil in people and how um, people can be reconciled. Mm. So, so that's the shorthand. So, Gabriel, you're black. 
<laughs> yes, I'm black. <laughs> I'm a black guy. <laughs> and you're reformed. Yes, I am. <laughs> Those are two things that don't often go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are, uh, of course, uh, a unique individual in that you um, are embracing wholeheartedly the reformed mm-hmm. faith. And mm-hmm. tell us about that. Tell us how you came to be reformed and, and also how that plays into your familial relationships, uh, friendships mm-hmm. with other um, uh, African Americans, you're thinking through uh, uh, this, because obviously the Reformed Church are typically made up of white people, and yeah. so you're, you, <laughs> yeah. socially you, you, you're, you're embracing what you believe is biblical doctrine, and yet mm-hmm. you're coming into kind of socially what is a white yeah. world, and mm-hmm. tell us about that. And, Sure. So, of course, I wasn't always reformed. And so when I was converted, I identified as a Pentecostal. And so all the things that you kind of think about Pentecostals, we were. We were more conservative than other Pentecostals. So we, we spoke in tongues. We heard prophecies and listened to prophets and et cetera. So that was our world. And one of the things that I continue to regret is that when I was converted, uh, I had a pastor between the ages of about 16 to 18. And so by God's grace, I was still growing in the faith and I had a lot of hedges around me to keep me from kind of falling off the wagon. But it wasn't until college that I realized that a lot of what today is called Pentecostalism is simply word of faith stuff. Mm. And it wasn't always like that. My grandfather would call Versus everything that word of faith what people would say as blasphemy um, but the reality was that when I left my first church from about 18 to 25 I was a member of a mega church but really what that meant is that I had no real church shepherding care give our listeners the the, the quick synopsis the, the one minute version of what is a word of faith church a classic word of faith church is a church that basically is it's a out kind of a, uh, a spilling over of some parts of Pentecostalism, but really the distinctive marks of a Word of Faith church is that you probably heard it on TV. It's the prosperity gospel mm-hmm. uh, people. These are the people who say that you can call your financial state into existence. These are the people who use faith as a personal force to kind of get what they want. Health. Yeah, health, wealth, wealth all those sort of things. So that's your classic Word of Faith. Some are more aggressive. Uh, so think of a TBN person. Some are more soft. So these are the people who say you can speak your reality into existence. You can change your reality by your words and things like that. So that was the environment I was coming into. I wasn't aware of all these distinctions when I was 17, 18. Mm -hmm. So after leaving my uh, church in high school, went to college and went to a mega church and didn't know that Word of Faith existed, but that was a Word of Faith church. And I was a member of that for three years. And the reality is that it sounds nice and exciting, it's flashy, it's, you know, you have power, you have all these sort of things, but if you take stock of your life, and that's what I did, at the end of three years, I can say that my growth in godliness was actually negative, it was declining. Mm. And that is kind of the, that was the light bulb moment to tell me that I need to really start considering what it is I'm hearing. So around the time that I was leaving undergraduate, um, I left 
a mega church, but I made the other error. I decided not to join any other church for about four and a half years. Mm. And there was, you know, obvious negatives with that. So I had a lot of youthful folly problems. Um, but one of the things that did force me to do was that I opened my Bible and just started reading. And every person who becomes Reformed finds it pretty much the same way. You start reading Romans 1 through 8, and you start tracking, like, yes, I understand it. You know, justification is awesome. And then you just get to Romans 9, and you just start scratching your head. Yeah. And because, you know, never heard Romans 9 preached before. I've always had people skip over Romans 9. I've also had people skip over certain aspects of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. And ultimately, you know, you just get confronted with this passage. And so at the time, I didn't know what to do with the passage. Um, I just kind of said, well, it's a mystery. Maybe, you know, it's too high for me to understand. But what actually happened uh, as a consequence, and this is now in grad school, I happened to live in a city with a lot of Catholic churches, with pretty much Catholic evangelists. And mm -hmm. so I was met with some Catholic evangelists and I knew I wasn't Catholic, but I didn't know why I was Protestant either, <laughs> to be honest. And so Catholics came to me and they started you know, saying some things. And I just said, that doesn't sound right at all. And at the same time, it didn't sound right, but I couldn't defend or make a positive statement against it. And so ultimately what it made me do is that it made me study. And probably there were two things that really struck, uh, kind of struck to me in that study. The first is that I learned of a whole bunch of reformed websites. So hmm. the major ones were Ligonier Ministries and so R.C. Sproul. Sproul's ministry. Um, another one was John MacArthur's ministry. And also I ran into a couple of reformed apologists. And so the one I still listen to today is James White hmm. of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Hmm. The other thing here, and this is because I'm a black guy, um, <laughs> There's a lot of reformed Christian rap. Virtually every major mm. um, rapper that's a Christian that's popular is has been influenced by reformed people. And that's primarily because of John Piper's ministry and John MacArthur's ministry. So yeah. I remember hearing a song from an artist named Shylin, for those who would know that sort of thing. And he had a song on the limited atonement. Mm, it's, called, it's called Mission Accomplished. It's phenomenal. And you hear the argument and you want to say, no, that can't be right. But then you can't refute it. <laughs> and it's a, it actually makes pretty good sense in line of the Bible. And like you're hostile to it. But again, basically what happens is that you study the scriptures. And uh, it took about a year and a half of just kind of thinking through it. And uh, basically I became convinced of the argument that, well, first that Christ didn't just give a universal blanket salvation offered to all people in a sense of everyone is now savable you just need to reach up to god i didn't get the understanding of that from other churches but a actual picture in which the actual triune god is unified in their purposes of saving his people mm. and to me that was a light bulb moment that if the father himself elects people and if the spirit is given to people who are actually saved and why would the atonement be universally kind of spread out in a general sort of way when christ was hanging on the cross he wasn't praying i hope this is not for 
for nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I, I hope that this my blood is being spilled for those who will be saved. He knew. Mm-hmm. He knew that he was dying for his people. He Amen. said. He, he said, "Father, I come for those whom you have given me." Right? Yeah. Amen. But what is also important here, and this is probably a commentary to kind of the new Calvinist today, is that I embrace the five points, but I never would have called myself reformed yet. Because it's more to being reformed than just embracing the five points of Calvinism. And so the next immediate thing I had to basically look at was the view of the church. And so the basic question that kept coming up to me as a younger guy kind of learning reformed theology is, is my doctrine of the church uh, more or less consistent with my doctrine of salvation? And what that basically meant for me was, do I believe in the means of grace? And do I believe that the actual church is more or less not just an optional thing for Christians just to join, but is the church itself the pillar and support of the truth? Is the church the actual way in which the Christian grows? And is worship defined by me or is it defined by God? And that led to the most important internal controversy for me. The five points, you can say that was easy. The most difficult thing to really grab onto was the relative principle. Mm-hmm. And that is because when you grow up Pentecostal, you are almost anti-regulative principle. Uh, because the spirit still moves, random things happen, flashy things happen that aren't explained. It's just the move of the spirit. It's basically whatever really reaches your heart is what God wants. And for someone to say that God has prescribed the way of worship in the scriptures and that you are responsible to it, that is a that's a jolt to the senses. That also means that God rejects a whole lot of worship. And that was the longest part. So that took about three years to fully embrace and understand. So and you're saying that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship? Yes, there is. <laughs> Some worship is unacceptable. I thought uh, you just had to be sincere. That's the only thing that matters. No. Uh, <laughs> you can be sincerely wrong. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so, and so what it basically meant was um, this was where most of the actual controversy regarding my own uh, brethren among African Americans comes up. Because most African Americans, they can we can argue doctrine, uh, we can kind of say that's eh, okay, we can agree, but worship wars are real uh, mm-hmm. within black churches, particularly if you are basically saying that there's a large part of worship that is unacceptable, and that you are doing things that are not prescribed by the scripture, and you're choosing not to do things that are actually prescribed, and so that was really the collision course, and so. In terms of being black or informed, the most immediate sort of statements I get as a black guy is that, you know, I've been away from black people too long. I've been hanging out with white people. I've gone off the farm. Uh, I'm now Uncle Tom. I've been hanging around too many, you know, upper class white people. We need to go back to your people and learn how we really do religion. And that is, uh, that's actually still the claim, uh, more or less these days from a lot of people is that. You believe that because you hung out with a bunch of rich Presbyterians. <laughs> so that's the actual remark. And so ultimately that is basically where a lot of the contention comes from. And today, one of the things that I've had to learn and one of the things that I've had to just kind of uh, grow with personally is that uh, 
just because simply you disagree with a Christian doesn't mean that they are no longer Christians. So what I mean by that is um, there are lots of people who aren't Reformed who are true believers. Sure. We're not doubting their salvation at all. But there are things worth separating over. And there are things worth disagreeing about. And they're worth things disagreeing strongly about. So it's, you know, some people say that, you know, Pentecostals, we have great unity because, you know, uh, we are flowing by the Spirit. What that really means is that we have chosen not to discuss doctrine. <laughs> and what that means is that we are choosing not to discuss doctrine. And so consequently, we have no real problems. But once you bring it up, yeah, of course, you now have, you know, fist the cuffs, you have people arguing and complaining and upset. And so what one of the things I've come to really appreciate about the Reformed faith is the fact that it takes seriously the actual word of God. Not that other Christians don't, but what it basically says is that we are seeking to honestly let Scripture interpret itself. We're seeking honestly to allow God to reform us. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel every generation. And what it also means is that we are basically constrained by the word of God. We basically do not say that the church has evolved to a new state because we have a new generation of people. No, the word of God has been fixed because the can is closed. And we are charged to basically maintain and to pass on the faith that has been delivered to us once and for all. So what that basically means is that uh, I'm in a tradition now in which, you know, I've basically met four reformed people, four black reformed people in my life at this point. Um, I see them on the Internet, but doesn't really count. <laughs> I mean, four physical black reformed people I've actually met. Um but at the same time, um, the church is not composed of ethnic groups in the sense that we don't have a black church here that's separate than the European church or the Dutch church or the continent. Yeah, we don't have uh, churches built by ethnic groups. We have churches built by the gospel. What you shared earlier is that there are real cultural obstacles mm -hmm. to the truth. Amen. And so what would you tell... Uh, other black Christians who are who are at the moment in churches where they are feeling uncomfortable with what's being taught, with the way things are being done, and their instincts are telling them, "I need to be under some serious biblical discipleship." What would you What would you tell them? Well, my first basic statement is that it's great to have a zeal for your own ethnic people, but you have a high priority. And Amen. one of the things that, and this is not just selective black people, all sorts Amen. of people around the world have to make a decision. Do you choose the ways of your ethnic people, which may at times be contrary to the word of God, mm -hmm. or do you choose the word of God? And every person has to be confront themselves with that reality that there are times in which being faithful to the word of God means that you have to disagree strongly with how you were raised or with the sort of ethnic people that you're around. So that's one thing. The other basic thing here is, and this is my own personal commentary, is just simply realize how much your understanding of Scripture is affected also by your upbringing. And so what that means is that uh, take the time to basically realize that uh, the Bible wasn't written in 1986 
and <laughs> the apostles weren't living a generation ago. Um, one of the things that's you know beautiful about the scriptures is that it's been written over a long period of time, but the canon has been closed for a long time. So that means it's possible for you to misinterpret the scripture based upon your own culture. Mm. So what that means is that it's always helpful to just read outside of where you were raised. It's helpful to just read what faithful Christians historically have believed about the Bible. And one of the things that to me has been helpful is to realize that if you feel like you're the only one who holds your beliefs among your ethnic group, uh, realize that if it's biblical, it's been held for thousands of years. There's a long tradition of people who have held the faith passed on. And so what you need to realize is that it's not a, a good thing for yourself and for the health of the church simply to say that I believe the things that the Bible teaches based upon my cultural upbringing. What needs to be said is the Bible has a meaning at the time where it's written and it's meant to be interpreted that way. And that's a, that's again, if you grew up charismatic, that's a jolt to your senses. The Lord isn't whispering a new revelation in your ear about the scripture. Mm. The scripture has already been interpreted <laughs> in mm. a sense. Mm. And what we are called to do is to labor in the word, to uh, labor in such a way that we are actually faithfully understanding the scripture. And, and the third thing is, and this is a commentary strictly to black people. Um, Should we leave the room? <laughs> um, <laughs> music isn't everything. Um, That's a commentary to white people too. Let me tell you, music is not everything. Uh, we all, a lot of us grew up with choirs. A lot of us grew up with. A really good bass player, really good solo singers, a lot of good rhythm going on. We grew up mm. dancing in a sense. Uh, uh, music isn't everything in church. There is things more important than music. Amen. And what you need to realize is that if you're prioritizing the cultural influences of music over actual doctrine, you, you're backwards. You need to conform Amen. yourself to the scriptures here. That's probably common to a whole bunch of people, but Indeed. for black people, I'm amazed at how often I hear people say, I love the teaching, I love the sermon, but I just can't deal with the white music. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. That is, that's to me a mind-boggling statement to say, I believe they're preaching truth, I believe that God's being proclaimed, but, you know, I need a good bass I need a good bass guitar. I need a good drummer. I need a good soloist. I need someone who can do a run <laughs> up and down the scales. That basically tells me that your priorities are backwards. And that's a, that's a real commentary towards a lot of people, a lot of uh, young black Christians who kind of grew up with a certain culturally music expression. Mm. You need to realize that, again, uh, there is the actual doctrine of the scriptures that you are responsible for. If you're in a church that has great music, but their preaching is basically just a couple of cliches they picked up from a fortune cookie sort of effect, then you need to make a decision. You need to leave. You need to reconsider your priorities. So those are the major uh, sort of commentary I would have uh, for this sort of thing. Well, Gabriel, this has been a wonderful episode, and it's wonderful to hear how the Lord has worked in your life mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. Alicia's life and uh, your daughter Alexandria now. I know you're raising her in the fear and instruction of Christ, and uh, we praise God he brought you to Christ Church. Amen. And uh, so I think that this episode will be instructive uh, to, our, to our listeners and, uh, and help us all understand 
uh, what what a church needs to be for all ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you say, it is so important uh, that we don't try to uh, make our churches for one demographic, mm-hmm. uh, for one skin color, for one uh, ethnicity, but rather that we do biblical Christianity, mm-hmm. and we're faithful to preach the Word of God, and that is what everybody needs, Amen. no matter where they're from. Well, we thank you for listening uh, to our latest episode of Between the Times.